Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. This is where we bring up topics from our table or yours. This is episode 51, A New World Postmortem. This is where we are going to review the recently finished campaign series, A New World. If you have not listened to these episodes yet, you probably will want to wait on this episode because it will be very spoiler heavy. But before we get to that, we have a couple shout-outs we want to do, so Caleb. Yes, um, we have two shout-outs to share today. We have two new backers on the RPG Academy Patreon page, and we want to shower them with love and affection, but in a totally appropriate way. Speak for yourself. Uh, a good friend of the show from a neighboring podcast, Stacy, a.k.a. Definitely Stacy on Twitter, uh, lots of love and a big thanks to you, Stacy. Uh, we also have a friend of the show, Clancy, who is on Twitter at PDXGeek777, which is just an epic Twitter handle. Uh, thank you as well, Clancy. We appreciate everything you guys have kicked in for us. We're still pretty slow on the momentum right now on the Patreon campaign, but I think we're going to get there. Michael and I have some really big plans of what we want to do, so... Every little bit helps. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we uh, we did actually just recently change. Uh, we added a milestone that uh, when and if we get to $25 a month, we will have a movie night. And uh, this is basically where we will invite people out of our backer pool and then maybe some special guests since we kind of have a small backer pool right now. And uh, we will watch a movie separately, unfortunately, and then we will get together on a Google Hangout, just how Caleb and I are record our podcast, and do kind of a talk about the movie, uh, similar to what we did with uh, Show and Tell Episode 1. We did the original D&D movie. We were talking on Twitter about it recently, and quite a few people said, you know, that would be a lot of fun. You should do more of those, and that just sort of evolved into, let's make it a, a Patreon milestone, and somewhat of a reward as well, that uh, if you're a backer and we get to $25, which we're not that far away from now, that uh, we will do that, and then probably our first movie will be D&D 2, and then from there, we will jump into some other movies like Crawl, Kevin Sorbo, uh, the newer Conans. Uh, there's tons <laughs> of movies that we can get that are RPG-themed and uh, and then just have about fun talking about them for an hour or so. I forgot about, the, I forgot about that Kevin Sorbo craziness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's totally a ripped-off Star Wars line where so he says, you changed the deal, and the bad guy goes, I pray I do not change it any further. I was like, holy yeah. shit, like... What's well, Kevin Sorbo? What do you yeah, expect? That's true. Uh, so I want to give a quick shout out, then we'll get started to our newest iTunes review. Now, this is a four-star review, which is fine. Obviously, we prefer five-star reviews, but we want people to give us honest feedback. This person thought we were four-star, but the comments themselves are very positive. Uh, this is by Skegjold. I'm not sure I pronounced that right, but I'm not sure anyone could. It is titled Good Listen, and Skegjold, Skegjold one or the other says, uh, so far, have only listened to one podcast. Most gaming podcasts last less, I think he's a tongue twister on purpose, than five minutes with me. This podcast, I listen from start to finish. Not blowhards blowing smoke about their game, just a lot of thought mechanics and creating your world with pros and cons. Thank you for speaking about homebrew games, and thank you for having that. Uh, lastly, he says, would like to hear more game discussion about magic and a breakdown of it. 
Uh, so one thing I'm not sure if he means magic like systems within the RPGs or magic like Magic the Gathering because we use those for our synergy session. So scheduled, please uh, send us an email in and kind of clarify that and we would be happy to discuss it. All right, so we got enough of that hoo-ha. We can get on to the show. So here is Table Topics episode number 51, A New World Postmortem. Okay, everybody, we are going to be doing a wrap-up here on the New World campaigns. So today, Michael is going to be playing the interviewee. I will be pestering him with questions. A lot of these people have shared via Facebook, Twitter, email, uh, and the like. So thank you to everybody who sent in a question. Um, I've amalgamated everything into one giant list, uh, along with a lot of my own questions. So... Yeah, let's get down to business. So, uh, Michael, when you were planning out this game, did you originally intend for this to be kind of that political focus with all that intrigue going back and forth between the characters and the NPC barons and such that you had? No. The the original concept, which uh, was instigated from a tweet that the angry DM sent out. He, he was sent out a, a, just a blast. And this was, keep on, this is probably close to a year ago now that this actually started. But um, he sent out a bunch of tweets, and one of them was about uh, more like the Americas being found, Christopher Columbus going to a new world and dealing with uh, natives. So that was my original thought, is that I would send them to just a new world, like a continent, Uh, And they would, it would be very much like pilgrims, but fantasy setting. So there would be a Native American equivalent tribe. I was thinking probably some sort of orc or maybe a tiefling, you know, some sort of strange creature, barbarian-ish. And it would be about trying to, trying to find a way to work with them and, um, and survive and build a relationship. And then I knew there had to be some sort of other danger, some sort of big bad thing that would eventually bring these two tribes together, so to speak. Uh, but it definitely changed quite a lot from the original idea to what actually happened at the table. Was that because of the choices the players made? Was that a, a call on your part of trying to make things more interesting or intriguing? Were you guys just kind of riffing off each other? It, it was a little bit of, of both. Uh, we went through and... I was heavily involved with Evan's character creation, and I was heavily involved with Rob's character creation, and their two characters were easily the best defined in my mind. Uh, Nico, I had a little bit, he, you know, being probably the most experienced gamer next to me, if, if maybe more experienced than me, I knew that he would be able to come up with a very good background, and I wasn't really too concerned with him. And then Nick and Travis's characters both happened very quickly, sort of last minute. So, so you probably, you know, if you listen to all of them, you might realize that Blaine, uh, which is Evan's character, and Durin, 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 Rob's character Durin, they had a lot more meat to them very early. Like there was a lot of more things that went that revolved around them. That's because I had had weeks 
to think about the game and figure out how their characters came into being where Nick and Travis and Nico were all like kind of last minute. I did, if I can remember correctly, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to have the main opposition be, the, the force that would bring people together. And I was doing a synergy session for a different segment, but one of the cards shows a huge like stone monster standing there and it you know it it's just massive and i don't remember the card name it's in the 2013 set i'm sure i can find it but it's basically like a stone golem but it's hundreds of feet tall and it's sort of like half kneeling in like a big field and that's where the idea of having a giant monster came from and that's where it's sort of the godzilla level monster and then i also had very recently seen pacific rim now i came up with the idea for the monster prior to seeing pacific rim but that certainly solidified in my mind Let's just make this a big kaiju or Godzilla. And then I'm like, well, you can't do that on our, the planet. That doesn't make sense. So that's where it's sort of like, okay, it has to be another world completely. And that's where I changed it from just being a new continent being settled to literally going into another world. Okay. So lots of different factors kind of kicked in. It was a little conflagration of all these different elements that kind of sparked the story. Yes. Going from that, I think we've kind of answered this question already, but um, how much of the original story, how much of your original intention for this did you plan out ahead of time, and how much evolved at the table? I know that's not a really easy question, but the listeners want to know, so I have to ask tough questions. <laughs> exactly, because people are clamoring for this. At least one person was. It's true, at least one. So... And I, we've talked about this before. I'm a very improvisational DM, a very, very heavy. I have big overarching stories, that, and, and those aren't even detailed. It's just like, okay, I know there's going to be a Godzilla creature on this island. I know that there are going to be these creatures that can body snatch and, and take over people. So I had these big ideas when I started, but I didn't always really have them connected very well. So I make up a lot of stuff at the table. And then, as we've talked before, I will I will work backwards. So at the end of the game, I may have made something up. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, what does that mean? And I will spend the next two weeks going, okay, well, if I work backwards from that, how does it actually connect and then move forward? And then I often will, basically, I prepare one session ahead of time. So at the end of the session, I know that they just did X. I have an idea of what they're going to do. I kind of make up just what I think will be the next three or four hours. So there, there are a lot of pieces and parts that just fell either at, truly randomly improvisationally improvisational at the table rather than a lot of stuff being uh, written out well ahead of time. Uh, so I, I get where you're coming from. Did anything drastically change because of your GM style or something a player did? Like did, did someone do something so drastically out of your expectation that you had to scrap a whole part of the story or you had to really scramble in that post-game preparation? It's probably not, it's nothing like exciting, but for each of the characters, I, I had an arc in mind in, in what they would be doing. So in Blaine's background, he was a simple man. He was basically like a baker, but he obviously would, had these, you know, genetic disposition towards violence. And he tried to go into the military, and that didn't work out, and he washed out. So I thought it would be very interesting to put him into a position of power over the guards. And that worked out pretty well. And that's, that's probably the, the storyline that got the furthest with him 
uh, because he certainly was moving towards a position of power. And I think ultimately he thought he might actually even try to be able to become the emperor, which would have been funny because there was stuff coming that they didn't know about. Rob's character, Durin's background, is he was part of a secret sect hidden within the temple of Pelor that actually worshipped the god of death. And I'm sure we will get to how that worked out in a little while, but it was very clear that he, he wasn't supposed to be evil. He simply worshipped death in the whole cycle of life sort of way, and that death was a part of life, and it you know, wasn't evil, it was just part of it. So I wanted him to be part of the church so that he could basically start the cult over, and I really thought there would be a lot of really cool things with his character where he was in, in front of everyone preaching Paylor, but secretly, and probably even secretly from the other characters, developing his cult and, and you know bringing people into the trueness of, of the what he's talking about. And then obviously there was also the thing with his father, which to me is still probably my favorite funny moment in the whole story is when he's uh, that moment when they talk about the box and he has that perfectly great response. He's like, oh yeah, there's nothing. No, you know, don't worry about that. And everyone at the table is like, oh, there's definitely something in that box. So yeah, so I thought that was a good moment for Nico because we knew kind of early on that he might be leaving and obviously he did leave. So I kind of had set up for a long time that he would end up being sort of like an NPC healer. His character knew things about the uh, the Stone Lords. I ended up calling them Stone Giants in the, the game, but they actually were supposed to be Stone Lords because they weren't, that was where my confusion came from. And he was going to put together that the Stone Lords that had been the empire before they left for a long time came from this world uh so that was kind of his thing nick's character was the only half elf and in the game he was literally the only half elf he was the only people that had connection to elves at all and that's why he was very important to the story that he was the only one that could open the doors to the big city so you realize there was some sort of connection with the elves and then travis's character was probably the least defined all he came up with is he was a gentleman thief and it wasn't till several sessions in that we even connected what it was that the nobleman had that Travis wanted. Uh, and that sort of came out at the table, sort of an improv thing. So I had an, an arc in mind for each of them. But uh, the, the point of that story is that Rob never really latched onto that. All the others kind of played along or, or, or went with it. But Rob really had no interest in the temple at all. I think early on I tried to, like, I put everybody in charge of something. Uh, you know, Blaine was in charge of helping the guards. Uh, Nick was in charge of helping the rangers try to, you know, map the area. And Rob's character, Durham, was in charge of helping to build a temple. He had no desire whatsoever to do that, and he basically didn't go anywhere. So I had to try to scramble to figure out something for his character to do, and I don't know that I ever really got back to it in a good way. Eventually, I gave him a lackey, because, again, I was trying to say, you know, here's your cult. Here's your first inductee to this cult, and we still never really went anywhere with it. Okay, well, that actually leads into another concept I wanted to bring up. Um, there was, in my mind, I think there was a lot of great role-playing at the table in this game. Um, there was a lot with character conflict, which kind of bled into player conflict at times. Yep. Uh, there was a lot of big decisions that happened. But at certain times, I think, and this is not a, a criticism of the game, but a lot of times those role-playing debates almost overtook the evening session. And that happens with all of us. In any game, at some point, the, the characters are faced with a big decision and the players spend an hour of real-world time 
figuring out if they want to go through gate A or gate B or whatever. So from you specifically running this game, watching that happen, was was that frustrating for you? How do you react to that and deal with it? Well, and, and we've kind of joked before about how I'm the asshole DM. I really enjoy those moments. As a DM, if I've done my job well and I've set up a world that these characters inhabit and they the players have created characters that have some depth to them, then there should be moments of conflict and indecision rather than being board gamey where it's just moving your tokens and do the next thing. So as a DM, I actually really enjoy when my players start having these conversations as long as they're mostly in character and it's role play-ish. It's like, well, from my point of view, my character wouldn't do this. And well, from my point of view, my character would. And they talk at the table. So I often will just kind of lean back and listen. And, you know, as we've mentioned others, I'll just, I really will listen to see what they're saying to get an idea of what they're paying attention to, what's important to them, what their motivations are. And I'll take some notes, whether it be physical or mental, to try to work those back in later. As a podcast editor, I had to cut a lot of that out. The, the one time that I really didn't was near the end when we had the, sort of the religious discussion uh, between Nico's character and Rob's character, and I kind of put the spoiler, uh, the, 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 the trigger warning at the beginning because we were somewhat opinionated about religions that are in the real world because we were trying to translate that to how these characters felt in this fantasy world. So I don't mind it as long as it doesn't go on too long. And again, most of the stuff that I, I cut out, most of it. So if you heard it, Trust me, there was a lot more of it you just never heard. Did you ever, as you were sitting back watching this happen, did you ever feel you had to interject a little bit to maybe lead them or encourage them one way or the other, either to feed the fire or just to see what happened or to try to get them out of that stagnant, locked debate that they were in? In in normal situations, I probably wouldn't unless it really was just dragging on way way too long and i started to see that some of the players had dropped out like you know you have five players that are in this conversation and after 20 minutes you have two players that are in that conversation the other three are are ready to make a decision one way or the other i feel the dm or as a facilitator you need to step in and, and do something because you've lost most of your table but the only time in particular that i can remember doing that was with the whole situation between uh the necromancer and the paladin because I could tell that some of the tension in the game was starting to spill out to the table. Like there really was some frustrations between Rob and Evan toward Nico, not Blaine Duran towards Valius. And that's the part where I felt it crossed the line. And again, we're probably gonna get to this more detail, but I can remember as the DM at the table when this initially happened, I kind of felt like Nico as a player needed to back off a little bit and let the story go forward and and find a way to make it work. And there was even a conversation, I don't know if it made it to the table or to the podcast or not, where I told him the more interesting story isn't the black and white paladin who refuses to work with evil, but the gray paladin that finds a way to make it work. I thought that was a more interesting story, and I kind of suggested that he should do that to sort of resolve the conflict. However, going back and as I was editing and listening, I actually now feel that it was more Evan and Rob instigating because I kind of got what Nico was doing is he was trying to have an arc. He wanted to set up his opposition, but there were a couple times where I could feel like, okay, he's, he's trying to role play out the arc 
where his character will come to accept him or at least be okay with it. And there were a couple of times where Rob and Evan were sort of needling and like the, the conversation was heated, then it was over, but then they would bring it back up. And so listening back to it, I actually put more of the onus of the conflict on Evan and Rob than I did on Nico. I'm still the DM. I'm still the facilitator at the end of the day. If there's conflict at the table, I need to resolve it. But from listening back to it, I, I actually changed my perspective of where it started. Well, it's interesting that you say that in retrospect, you saw Nico building that role-playing arc. And just as a little bit of a tangent here away from the discussion, I think that's a really cool thing for a role player to do. A lot of times at the table, we are just reacting to each other. We aren't necessarily planting the seeds for the next legs of our story. So I think that really speaks to Nico's skill and experience at role-playing. The fact that he kind of had that foresight to say, okay, I know I have to deal with this because it's the game, but I want to have it make sense. I don't want to just flip a switch and be like, okay, now my paladin's okay with it. I want to plan it out. I want to see it happen over a couple episodes. Yep, and I think that's that's what I missed initially, and I was just like, you know, in my head, I'm like, you're the more experienced role player. You know how this works. Let's just move on. And then as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, no, he did have a plan. It just never came to fruition. Right. I, I got to say, just personally, I love some of the moments that he just instigated playing the paladin. Like, specifically in one of the last episodes, someone said to him, you know, whoever has the most HP should go first. And he just says, what's HP? Yeah. <laughs> that, I, was, I think I was in the car driving, and I started laughing hysterically, <laughs> because that's just, it's such a great moment. <laughs> yeah. Now, I really miss Nico at my table, and as you know, I'm trying to get him to join our 13th Age game online, and right. he wants to, but it's just a matter of timing. But uh, timing if, if I have any any power in this universe, you will hear more of Nico on these podcasts at some point in time. I, I think everyone has enjoyed the role-playing uh, he has done and the characters that he has brought to life through your games. So that will be a, uh, a monumental event when we hear his voice back on the airwaves. <laughs> Kind of uh, getting back into the thick of this here, talking about some role-playing and character choices, and again, we're deep, deep, deep in spoilers here. We've said it a couple times, or can't stress it enough. Uh, towards the end of the game, or what became the end of the game, the characters uh, got into that big giant city, and they lost all of their connection to magic while they were in this stronghold. How do you think that the players reacted to this. Basically, you telling them, hey, the majority of your class skills you now can't use. Deal with it. One of the things that's interesting about that is the way the podcast edit out, I usually get between two and three episodes per session. So they were in the city, I think, for six or seven episodes, but that was really only two sessions at the table. So I don't think that any of them really were frustrated by the lack of their powers and there were a couple times where they stepped out through the doors out of the city and they were able to get them back. So they knew this wasn't a permanent uh, debilitation. Like they would always have the ability within an hour in game to walk to a door and do something. But I wanted to set up that within the city, you were protected. And, and that's one of the things that I knew from the beginning that I would eventually give them a safe spot because I was going to make this world dangerous. And I wanted them to understand that it was freaking dangerous the the trees would try to kill you the grass would try to kill you you couldn't drink the water 
the only safe place to be was a giant uh, sandbar, which attracted the attention of the Godzilla-sized monster. So there really was no safe place. So I knew at some point in time I wanted them to have a safe space, but I wanted them to have enough danger first that it was a reward. Like if, I, if as soon as they showed up, they found a safe city, it would have devalued how dangerous the world was in my mind. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted there to be some interesting interest in the, like a mystery around the city. One, why is it here? Why is there no magic? Who used to be here? How does it work? And I think the, the missing magic was a key part of that mystery that would have eventually been solved and they would have had the option to turn magic back on. Like that was something that they were, they were going to have the option to do. But as some of them foretold or guessed, that would have opened them up to future attacks by the pale elves and the giants. So it really would have come down to, do we want to live without magic or do we want to have magic and then have to worry about constant threat of this force that we don't know about yet? Gotcha. Okay, so you answered my next question already. You did plan the, at least the possibility of that status changing. But going back to what we said earlier about how you like to run the game, you were going to put that decision onto the players. Yes, and you were yeah. going to let them take the responsibility. You weren't going to railroad that. Correct, and it would have been an it would have been an on off switch, and, and it was one time basically, as if they they would have had the ability to turn off the because essentially there was a magical effect that was keeping the magic from working, and uh, it's probably another question, but Japan, the red light at the top of the tower was the effect. So if they had climbed to the top of the tower, there was a red energy ball, and that was what was basically spreading out this anti magic field. So if they had turned it off, it would have basically turned off the anti-magic field, but they would have had no way to turn it back on. So once it was off, it was off. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. I'm, I'm trying to stick to questions that are kind of more generic and uh, over the entire game at this point. So we're going to get to those very specific what about this one thing, because those are the ones I really want to ask. But <laughs> trying to be a responsible interviewer, and talk about everything in a larger scope here. Going back to, was it uh, was it Durin that had the demon in the box? Yes. Yeah. Was that your idea, or was that his idea? Yeah. It, it was a kind of a combination. Mostly, it was my idea. He wanted to have a background. I think he. I think if I remember correctly, he said he wanted it to be sort of like uh, Doctor Frankenstein-ish where he had right. a background that had something to do with undead and necromancy. And I already knew Blaine's character had been set. Blaine was the first character we got done. And I knew that Blaine was attached to the noble Jason Winters. And I knew that that was going to be the reason why the characters left. So I wanted to find a way to connect Durin to Jason. And that just sort of kind of came about that he was um, a medical doctor type of a thing, you know, a, a healer. And so this was all background, and, and some of it didn't even come out, but basically his dad was like a mortician, and uh, he, you know, in the, in the village they came from, he was the one that would take care of the dead bodies, and he did all these crazy experiments, kind of like Dr. Frankenstein, and then after he died, Duran took over the family business, and that's when he found all these secret writings and all these experiments, and he was very interested in it, and well before he had any true, like, clerical powers, he did an experiment trying to bring his dad back, and that's when his body was infused with demons. We kind of skip over the part how he subdued him, because I'm not sure there really is an in-game way for that to work. But as a story element, it was great. 
At least I think so. Uh, we also gave him the zombie familiar bird who he right. thought actually had the true soul of his father inside of it, but that his dad's body was actually filled with his legion of demons. Were you planning to unleash those demons at some point? Yes. Basically, it, and, I, and I wasn't sure how it was going to work out myself, but the way it ended up working out, that was one of the things that was going to be great, is because the body was left on the beach when the giants and the pale elves attacked. So the body was there. It would have been taken by the pale elves and the giants. And I hadn't worked out exactly what was going to happen, but something was going to happen there where the demons were going to be released. Or at least, in my mind, maybe the body would have become animated as a person. And I actually thought that he might take over and become their leader at that point. Because, again, it was it was a story element. I hadn't really defined mechanically what that meant, but it was a pretty powerful thing. If they had decided to pop open the box and try to fight it, I might have had to have let them win. But in my mind, they would have all died like quickly so i might have had something where it runs away or something like that but yeah it was it was a pretty powerful story point that i thought was going to get very interesting but unfortunately now we'll never know so it, it's not just something that you said okay you have this box full of demons you did have a plan for it or at least an idea of where it could have gone right again and it wasn't necessarily set in stone that it would happen but but the way it played out again because i kind of planned a session or two ahead when they left the body on the beach and they ran, and I think even someone mentioned in the game that someone like offhandedly says, oh, we left the body on the beach. That's where I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, wait, you did leave the body on the beach, and now there's all these <laughs> enemies there. What are they going to do with this box? So I knew something was going to come with it, but uh, I just I didn't know exactly what yet. So through the course of the story, you had all these twists and turns. You were continually dropping all these bombshells on, on, uh, on the characters as they were exploring everything. Uh, at any point during the game or the player discussion, did they guess correctly as to what was happening? I don't know. And one of the things that I've, I've gotten criticism from my group for, and I, mean, I kind of see I'm doing the same thing now with you in my game, Secret Slides and the Dead, is that I will throw a mystery at you, and before you have a chance to solve it, I throw another mystery at you that seems to be more urgent. So that you have to stop That's true. investigating. And then before you solve that mystery, I throw another mystery at you. So, you know, I don't know that they ever were on the right track long enough to really formulate. They were always reacting. Like, the idea of the city was to give them a home base where they could start planning. And I don't think they ever got to the, to the part that they weren't reacting. So I would say no, because I don't think they had time. Okay. Yeah, you are totally a jerk for doing that, by the way. I do, and I don't mean to, but it's just like, how can I make this more fun and exciting? I know, ninjas. Oh, God damn ninjas. Here's a good one. I believe at some point in the past, I asked you uh, what this, what part of the story was, if this was some sort of like micro-environment world that was being experimented on by aliens or they had, it, the, the characters had ended up in like this closed terrain experiment something like that and you gave me a very typical evasive answer was i anywhere close because that's been bugging me forever well sort of yes and no and this was one of the things that was very vague in my mind. I, I knew there was some stuff going on, but I hadn't I hadn't fully solidified it yet, and I don't know that I ever would have, to be honest. But the first 
clue was the Tresharkopus, which still was probably one of my favorite moments in the, the game, too, just because at the table, everyone cracked up at that. And someone asked me at some point, like, why wasn't it something else? And I was like, well, it's a Tresharkopus, because it's the combination of a turtle, a shark, and an octopus. And the hint was that it was three things. That was the, the sort of the clue, is that there were three things that combined. And then we also learned later that they were like these scorpion snake spiders. So we had two different instances where three different things were combined together. And then very later on, we learned of the three faceless gods. So this was a world that was created as an experimental playground by three supremely powerful wizards, sorcerers type of a thing. And this was sort of their playground. But much like any experiment, at some point in time, it grew beyond that and sort of escaped them. And, and in my mind, they've, they've moved on and they no longer care about this. And it's basically just sort of been going on its own cyclical nature ever since then. So there, so it wasn't well-defined, but yes, it was sort of an experimental playground by these three vastly powerful godlike beings. Gotcha. That moment, light bulb clicked off as soon as you said three were the monsters. I don't think I would have picked up on that if I was playing in the game. I think it the the way you structured it, we were so the players were so overwhelmed by the chaos of the monsters that that little detail got buried. Yes. And then of course we threw another dozen mysteries at them. So who knows? <laughs> right. and, and I don't know that I would have been disappointed if they didn't figure that out because it was still, you know, I'd lost, I dropped a couple clues, but I still didn't know exactly how it worked out. So you know, it was right. it was a far off thing. But once they got to the temple and they saw the three faceless gods, I thought there might have been a moment where someone was like, hey, you know, that's weird that we have, we fought a Tresharkopus and a snake scorpion spider and thing. Um, but again, I think if they had been able to stay in the city for a while and start doing the typical set around the campfire and everybody share information, that it might have come up. Or at the very least, you could have put some extra hints in that city that would have reminded them about that or given them a little bit of a supernatural TV show style flashback reminding them that the weird things they encountered had that multiple of three as a factor. Right. So if if the monsters were these amalgams of the, the three things, where did the giant Godzilla creature come from? Was that just you having fun? Well, it it's one of those things where not everything that they interacted with was based on threes. So there were like the invisible spiders had two things oh so yeah in, so in my mind there were so it wasn't like everything was three and the godzilla was just one of those things that was like an experiment that went out of control and it had the ability to teleport around which again was one of the hints that teleportation was possible and then later the the pale elves and the giants uh, teleport as well so i wanted to let them know that there was power on this world that could get them places or possibly back home but yeah, it, I didn't have like a solid connection. I knew it was created by the three faceless gods, but I, it wasn't like I had written out exactly how, when, well, how, or why. In my mind, it was an experiment out of control. It probably was something they started, and they're like, eh, whatever, and then it just sort of evolved on its own. Did you ever think in the back of your mind that you the the characters would get to a point where maybe they could encounter the giant Godzilla creature again? and maybe actually fight it? Or was that just going to be a set piece? Here's this giant thing. It's going to kill you. Deal with it. What I envisioned happening, because I did try to make it so ridiculously big, is 
I wanted them to try to write it, and then when it teleported, I was going to have something very interesting about where it went. And there probably would have been some clues there or something else that they could have eventually, like, maybe jumped off of it mid-teleport mid and been in a completely different part of the world. And, again, there might have been a city there. There might have been a civilization that they could interact with that maybe worships this as a god. So I didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but in my head... I wanted them to jump on it and write it through one of these teleports, and then I was going to do something cool on the other side. But no, they never they never would have been able to fight it. In, in my version of D&D, they never would have gotten powerful enough to, to fight that creature. Right, because you're so stingy with magic weapons and, and any of the fun parts. Correct. Well, no, that's, that leads to a question that I was going to ask a little bit later. Because your GM style tends to be lean on the material rewards, in other words, stingy, at the end of the game in the city, they found that giant fucking gold treasure. Yes. Were you just screwing with them? Because they couldn't do anything with it. <laughs> a little you bit. Finally give, you finally yeah. give someone a massive pile of treasure, and they can't do shit. Yeah, pretty much that. There was, there was a story reason for it, and there was a Michael being a dick move. <laughs> Reason and Evan even said that you know that's the only time Michael will give you millions of gold is when you can't spend it. So, exactly. You know, I thought it would be funny to give them countless amounts of treasure in a situation where they have no ability to do anything with it. I thought that would be funny. And then the the thing with the temple and the three faceless gods, you know, again, if you've listened to it, you you should I hope understand that the sluggo creatures had infiltrated the temple and they had taken over, and they were the priests leading. And this was basically them stockpiling the treasure for some later use. I think one of the players said at one point that they didn't think the Sluggos cared about treasure. That's not true. There, you know, there, that, there really was no evidence for that. That was just, like a guess, on their part. So, yeah, so these this particular tribe or group of Sluggos were, had infiltrated the city, were, were in the process. They were going to take it over, and they were basically using the religion to control the populace, to gather the entire city's wealth, and eventually they were going to kill everyone and then have that wealth. Were, were they the ones that had scratched out the faces of the wizards or gods or whatnot? Yes, uh, that was one of the things that was just like a story element that came to me that I envisioned that at some point someone had saw like a mid-transformation sluggo, and so as a way to try to keep control of the populace, they sort of created this faceless god and that they were emulating their gods by their faces being malleable and that was also a hint to the players that the, these were in fact sluggos that were changing shape and that kind of thing gotcha well let's let's jump into some details here from the slugs there at the start of this conversation you had said that you had these random ideas with the shape changers so i'm guessing from what you're saying you always wanted them to be there right I wanted there to be a, a sort of a, a body snatchers or the movie The Thing, the you know the Kurt Russell not 80s ice monster type mm. thing, because uh, mm. I love that movie and I love body snatchers. And I love the idea that you're in a very somewhat closed environment. You have a very limited number of people, and you can't trust anyone is who they say they are. Like I just like the the role playing and the story elements of there being conflict between what should be your your only allies in this world and you can't trust them. So I really liked that. It wasn't until they actually started to fight them 
that I decided to make them pink slug creatures. That was a total bullshit at the table moment uh, that I just decided to go with, and I liked it, and I think it, it turned into some cool moments with the turning into a snake and slugging around and stuff like that. And then, again, I, I kind of brought it back around when we got to the three faceless gods, and that's like, okay, well, that makes sense, blah, blah, blah. So it was just one of those happy little things that happens at the table. Gotcha. So you, you had planned out the concept of the body snatchers and the the elements of betrayal and deception. You didn't solidify it from the beginning, I'm going to create these slug creatures and they will do X, Y, Z. You just had the concepts in place. Right, and I, and it worked out because one of the episodes that was lost, or sessions, is where they went, there was like a puzzle element. They went out after some missing people. They fought the invisible spiders, and then they found the first of those like elven rune circle things that eventually was the stairway leading down. So they were gone for like a full day. And then it made sense to me because I also wanted to bring in that these are the most powerful people on the island. They all go running off. What happens to the po, you know, the podunks that left on the beach? Of course, they're going to get attacked. And it, it all just kind of worked together. And uh, it, was just, it was a great moment when they came back and then everyone's like, why did you leave? <laughs> we, we've been getting slaughtered and now we have people missing. And so I just thought it was kind of a, a great moment. Did the slugs only exist in this alternate world, or were they in the original world where the PCs came from? By which I mean to say, were they on the boat? Okay, so there was there was some moments where I thought about doing that, and, and it didn't ever come to a point that would have mattered. Like, so at least into the story so far, it really would not have been an issue. But in my mind, there was a time where I'm like, okay, is Maven always, has he always been a slug? Like, did he get on the boat as a slug, or was he turned here? And I was about 90-10 that he was turned on the island and that the slugs did not exist. And the reason why, and I don't know, well, I don't know, I don't want to jump too far ahead because I think we're going to get there, but at some point in time, I had planned on the players going back to the original world. And in my mind, I kind of wanted them at that time to have an alliance with the slugs and to bring them back with them because there was going to be some really bad stuff going on in their home world. And I thought that would be a kind of a cool thing is if they actually made an alliance with the slugs and brought them back. And to me, that was more interesting than the slugs being there the whole time. Okay, I agree. Of course, I think it would have been interesting to have that one slug kind of orchestrating the whole thing, but that is kind of a cheaper story element. I would have liked to see what happened with, with that relationship between the slugs and the players, how that uh, kind of politically would have played out, especially with Blaine just kind of randomly slaughtering them. <laughs> yeah, because again, the original concept of this being the new world like the Americas, the sluggos became the Native Americans in, in a way. You know, they, they are not necessarily happy-go-lucky, hey, come on over. They, you know, they have a lifestyle that they have to maintain. They have to kill people to survive. Here's new food. But they were willing to enter into a negotiation and a treaty. And that was kind of my effed up version of that, where that could have been an alliance that I would have, I would have not just screwed with and the haha, we're evil and attack them later. If they would have made a good faith treaty, I would have probably maintained it on my side as the players, because that's, that was a, a relationship I was interested in. Would there ever have been a way for the slugs to be safely removed from their hosts? Or did they the host actually just die and the slugs replace them? Correct. Yeah, it, it wasn't a, like, 
an ear worm take over the body. The sluggos literally became those okay. people. Now, the one thing that I did a little bit differently is the, the they had the ability to change their physical shape. They you know they were could be somewhat big, somewhat small. Obviously, they can change their features, so they have to be able to to manipulate their size. So the killing of Baylor was a slug just crawled into him and then popped up like a balloon, and that's that's why he exploded. And that was because gotcha. they didn't they didn't have time, uh, at least in my mind, the way the story where they didn't have time to to kill him, dispose of the body, take over. And they were concerned about being uh, revealed through the book of people knowing who was here and who wasn't. So that was just a way for him to die. They just went chestburster at that point. Yes. Uh, at one point during the story, was it Maven that came up with the saltwater ploy? Yes. And at that point, he was a slug, right? Yes. He was trying to sow distrust, and he wanted okay. them to think something that wasn't true and to keep attention off of himself. Gotcha. And that was uh, which makes, n- Right. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> at least at this point. Yeah. Which makes sense in the story, uh, in retrospect anyway. You know, looking back now that we're seeing those plot elements come together, I, I get that. Did you ever have plans for a successful test so that someone really could know who was possessed or not or who had been replaced or not? Well, we, we did that at the end with uh, once they realized that uh, Nick was a druid after a while and that he had uh, heightened senses oh. as an animal, it was possible for him, right. for him to do that. But the, the, the tests that the maven gave them were bullshit. But yeah, but yeah, that once was he was totally turned into an animal, he was able to smell. It still wasn't perfect because, of, because there was so much contamination, but mm-hmm. that would have been the long-term solution that uh, in animal form he could smell. So let's talk about some specifics here. Okay. Um, the whole story started with a portal opening. Mm-hmm. Where did that? Why did that happen? Where did that original portal come from? Okay, so here was the overall story. The elves are assholes. Okay, so that's nothing new. That's nothing new. So the elves were from that world. The elves were the previous. The new world that everyone was in. Yes, they, that, that is where they originally came from. Because, again, in this world, I set up at the beginning that elves were unknown until the very end of the war. They suddenly sort of showed up, um, and there was a lot of still distress. So this isn't your typical Tolkien environment where elves have been around for forever. Elves were kind of a new thing. So the elves okay. were actually the previous inhabitants of the city, which is why Nick's character was the only one that could open the doors, because he's a half-blood uh, elf. So they are not nice people. And they wanted to try to get back to their homeland because there were some things left behind that they wanted. And I had not truly defined that yet, but I knew there was something they wanted. So that's why they came to the human populace and said, hey, we found this weird portal. We think it goes somewhere. Why don't you help us go through it? So the elves instigated uh-huh. the, the find. Because I think Nick even said the very first episode, he's like, how the fuck did they find this portal? It was in the middle of nowhere. Because right, they, they did. Yeah, it. I remember that. They made it. Um, so their whole okay. plan was to send them back through, and it's, it's kind of like the underpants gnomes. Step one, find the underpants. Step two, step three, make money. So I knew the elves <laughs> were instigating this. Hadn't quite figured out exactly what their end game was, but I knew that they had actually created the stone lords. Like the stone lords were a, either a creation of the elves, or they were sort of a slave race to the elves, and they're the ones that built 
the city. So that's why they didn't fight until they saw that the Stone Lords were lost and they came in at the very end of the battle to help out. So yeah, so that that was what that was all about. Gotcha. So the elves came from the New World. The elves had created the Stone Lords. Well, the... I, they, or I still hadn't decided if they created them. I think what was going to happen is that they were actually... Because the, the dragon symbology in the city is that I knew that and somewhere on that on the New World was was a race of dragons, very powerful dragons, probably the like the original experiments that the faceless gods made, and they were more like dragons in typical literature, ancient, powerful, magical, and they wanted to help these lowly elf creatures that had no chance of survival in this dangerous world. So they built the city for them, and then they created these workers you know, they basically were kind of like warforged or golems they weren't necessarily sentient creatures necessarily and they created them to help so that was that was kind of like the ambiguous still felt figuring out idea between the stone lords and the, how they connected to the elves but the elves wanted to go back to that world uh, for some reason i hadn't decided yet okay so in the world that the players i'm sorry that the characters came from the the, the Stone Lords had also built those cities, right? Yes, uh, because, again, the Stone Lords... Okay, so this is where things get a little bit wonky. Keep in mind, I make up a lot of stuff as I go along. I thought it would be funny to include time travel in my game because there's God so much... damn it! So, basically, what happened was the elves were leaving the world they, they decided to leave that world. They found a way to, to make a stable portal. And they sent the Stone Lords through first to sort of protect them. But the portal was also a time portal. So it wasn't like they went through and the elves were five minutes behind. They went through and the elves were hundreds of years behind. So just in the matter of a few you know minutes, maybe a couple hours, maybe in a day between when they sent the Stone Lords through first to secure the area and the elves came through, Hundreds and hundreds of years had passed. The Stone Lords were under their previous orders to make sure this place is safe for us. And so they sort of, on their own, like, all right, well, we got to kill everybody and enslave them and make sure that when our masters show up, that they're safe. So the whole Stone Lord Empire was them following the last orders of their elven masters. So the elves show up. It's now hundreds of years later. The humans and dwarves have started to rebel and the Stone Lords are all but defeated. So the elves make a very quick decision. Ah, shit. Uh, what are we going to do? All right, well, they just help take out the rest of the Stone Lords, and then they got to figure out a way to get back home because they're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. Which is where the, they created the portal, and they tricked everyone into going through. Correct. They knew that <sighs> there was a time element with the portal, but they still didn't know how it worked, which is why they wanted to go through first so that that way... They, the way they thought it would work is that they would get there earlier than everyone else, and they would have time to prepare. And so actually the way I decided to do it, because this is all made-up bullshit anyways, is that it worked the opposite way, and the first people through were actually the last people to show up. So that was one of the big mysteries, is that our PCs entered on the very last ship to go through, which means they actually would have been the first people to arrive. God, you are a dick. I am a dick. <laughs> Wow. 
and we'll, and we'll get there later. But there there was an important reason why I decided to do do it that way. And I, this I want to make sure we touch on it, but I don't know if here's the time. So we'll just make put an, an asterisk there. I want to make sure we come back to that. All right. Well, speaking about the boats, then the story element you had was that the PCs were all on the last boat as they next, go through the next to last. Next to last. Sorry, you're right. So as they go through, there's all that chaos. You made them make saves or something like that. They look back, and there was an explosion, right? Yes. All right. What was that? Okay. So that was Maven and Gunther. Their plan all along was to become the new emperor. That was what okay. they were trying to accomplish. So they had ar arranged, and again, it's just a story on what happened, for the son of the true emperor to die so that he never shows up. Because, again, they don't know anything about the time portal. They think they're all going to show up at the same time. So they right. would then be one of only a few nobles within the, the the survivors, and they were going to try to manipulate things so that they would then one of them would have become the emperor. At some point, they would have betrayed each other. Gunther thought he should be it. Maven thought he should be it. But they were co-conspirators at the time. So their idea was to uh, kill that guy and then manipulate the council surviving to get onto uh, the emperor. Now this is one of the things that I'm I'm very proud of. And I don't think there's enough evidence for anyone to have known this, but part of that secret plan was the fire on the ship. So remember when they woke up and their ship was on fire? So I'll ask you, do you have any idea who set that fire? No, because I was just going to ask you as my next question. <laughs> okay. No, I have no clue. <laughs> so this is one of those happy little moments that, that, that I live for as a DM. So the person who was the arsonist was Eckerd, the first mate. Because he had already worked out with the nobles that once they got there, that they would need to add nobles to the council. Because they knew that the other guys were going to die. And who would be the first person that would get promoted? Ship captain. Right. So if Eckerd's the first mate, ship captain dies, Eckerd becomes captain. But only because I, said, I asked Evan, I was like, where are you at? He's like, I fell asleep in the captain's quarters. Evan was there. So Eckerd could not kill the captain. So if, if Evan had not chose that, that day the captain would have never been found and Eckerd would have become captain and he would have been that one that was promoted to noble on the island. Oh, so he he started the fire because he couldn't kill the captain. Well, no, he started the fire as a distraction. Oh, and, oh okay, okay, okay. And he was going to go murder the captain while the fire was going on. So that no one would know there's all this confusion and then it would be a way for him to, to to do that without being seen. That's that's very smart. That's that's a good plot point. It was a good one. I and then I thought it actually worked out kind of cool the way it didn't happen, but the mystery was still there. Yeah, yeah. I never would have figured that out if I didn't just outright ask you. So so the uh the clock type puzzles with the columns and everything. Yes. Were those those were things the elves had built then, yes? Yes. Again, this was, and it's another thing that wasn't necessarily super well defined, but I wanted there to be hints that the elves were the original builders of the city or, or inhabitants. So to have this sort of elven script that reacts to elven blood was supposed to tip them off that this was essentially an elven city. Speaking of the city, that was the elves' original stronghold then. Yeah, well, it was the stronghold that the dragons built for them. Oh, the dragons built it for the elves. Yeah. And then the that was why we had the dragon statues. That's why we had the anti-magic field 
kind of emanating from that one big dragon statue. Yep, so the dragons had built the city for the elves because they kind of felt sorry for them because the elves had no chance to survive it in this world. They created the stone lords to assist them. And then as dragons do, they left and never came back. So they were kind of left to their own devices. The Sluggos eventually infiltrated the city and started to take over. And they had taken over about a, about a quarter of the populace. And that's where there was some mystery with, with the infighting. So basically, some of the elves in the city did not like the direction of the city, even though they didn't know the Sluggos were manipulating. They just, you know, it was basically like a political thing. Republicans, Democrats, everybody hates each other. So they start sort of fighting and a big chunk of the elves leave. They're like, we don't want anything to do with this anymore. We don't like where this is going. So they decided to leave. And over a span of a very long time, those elves became the pale elves. And what I ended up, and again, this was all crap I'm making up as I go along, is that the sluggos, even though they can change their shape and their features, they were unable to produce the same look as the pale elves. And basically what they were, they were sort of like an undead. They weren't actually undead, but they had no blood in them. They, they had found a way to remove their actual blood and substitute it with something else. So they were kind of like undeads. The sluggos were unable to adequately copy that. So that was a development, like an evolutionary development to protect themselves against the slug creatures. They then decided to come back because they realized the slug creatures had infiltrated their brethren. And that's why they were acting that way. So they actually were coming back to attack the city to liberate it from the sluggos. The remaining populace, some sluggos, some not, they realized that these, these guys were able to use magic to get into the city. So they decided to put up an anti-magic field to keep the pale elves from getting in. And that's when they shut down all the sluggos. Gotcha. So the evidence of the fighting that the PCs found, it was that original conflict. Well, it was the, the, the not the original, it was the, the one where the elves were coming back, the pale oh, elves they came back. back to try to liberate their brethren because they knew that the slugs were there, but they didn't know how to tell who was who. So like the, the evidence of the, the fighting inside the house was a sluggo looking like an elf and then attacking an elf that they thought was a friendly and they basically killed each other inside the locker room. Okay. Okay. Um, when the PCs were in this city, they had, I think there was four big doors. There was the door they came in from, from that underground forest. Yep. There was the door that led to the underground lake. Yep. There was a door that had a road just going out somewhere. And then there was another door that they never got to before the game ended. Yes. So, were, were the, first off, were these doors legitimately locations there physically in this new world? Were they their own portals jumping them somewhere different? No, they were physical doors, and it, some of that I had not fully defined yet. But I knew each of the doors was an opportunity to go somewhere where there would be interactions. Because I didn't want them to be totally insular and never react with anybody once where they were in the city. Because I thought they would welcome the city despite its, you know, weirdness. Because the world was so dangerous, I thought, you know, I gave them a safe place. Why would they not go there? So I was, as a DM, a little bit confused as to why they weren't more excited about jumping in the city, staying there. So the door that went off to the Wild West kind of area, I, I knew there would be a civilization on the other side of that road. I hadn't decided who or what. But if they had decided to follow that road, I would have put a civilization in front of them that they could have interacted with 
that wasn't the Sluggos, it would have been another one. I, I don't know if I would have made up my own race, but it would have been something there that they would have been able to interact with and maybe get more information from. The water one was the Pale Elves and the Giants, because that's I'd already decided that that's how they were attacking the city, so that obviously had to lead to them. So again, that would have been another civilization that they could have interacted with, maybe eventually come to an understanding. Because in a lot of ways, they were actually the good guys. They didn't right. really know what was going on. The, the Sluggos told them, like, hey, these are your enemies. That's not actually true. They were the Sluggos' enemies, but, you know, Sluggos are just up the bay holes. The last door, the one they didn't get to, is the one that actually, in a way, it cracks me up. Because, again, I had no idea the game was going to end, okay? This was completely unknown to me. But on the other side of that door was going to be, A, a Stone Lord, who had been sent to negotiate with a civilization uh, hundreds of years ago and came back and was not able to get in and is still standing there waiting to be let back in and would have been a font of information that they could have asked because Nick's character would have been able to control it and they basically would have exposition dumped anything they wanted to know from a thousand years ago. Deuce ex machina! And that tunnel was filled with glowy rocks that they would have been able to use to create light sources. So the one door that they did not open is the one door that I had put all this plot regurgitation in front of them. <laughs> and again, <laughs> if I had known, I would have just moved the doors, you know, and like, oh, they opened this door. That's that door. I had no idea. Right. So, and, you know, it kind of worked out that that was the, the door they didn't get to yet. Well, let's go back to that point you wanted to make about the order of the boats before we go too much further, because I don't want to forget about that. So the reason that was important is, you know, anybody who's listened to enough of these episodes knows I'm, I'm a story guy. That's, that's what I like. And so I actually would have been okay with Blaine eventually being nominated onto the council. Like, I would have been totally okay with that. Because what was going to happen is after they had sort of settled the, settled the, the, the island or the, to settled the city, and I would have probably like flash forwarded a few months and just said, okay, you you have the civilization, you're stable, you have food, you have water, you've started to go through the houses, you find more sluggos, you you know clear them out, whatever. You're rebuilding. Everyone is safe and happy for the moment. And then, and I don't, I don't exactly know how I would have done it, but eventually I would have gotten them to go back to the surface world for something. And they would have found that within the last couple of days, another of their boats from the original portal had shown up. So now they have this society they've built. They've gotten comfortable. They got safe. And now they have a whole boatload of more people. They have a whole boatload of new nobles who are not okay with some of the rules and the choices that have been made. And whether it had been Jason, who I assume would eventually be emperor or maybe Blaine, Blaine would have been on the council. They would have come in and be like, no, you are not the emperor. You are the lowest ranking noble on this island. We are going to have new elections and one of us will be the, the emperor. You are a half-breed orc. You are not allowed on the council. And it would have been a very big sort of political thing on how they react with, they are now safe and happy, and then their own people show up and screw with it. Because I was really looking forward to that happening. But never did. Gotcha. Okay. So there would have been, you would have had no problem with letting one of the PCs, whether it was Blaine or whoever, getting onto the council because you wanted this to happen down the road a little bit. Right. So it would have been short-lived. Their their happiness would have been short-lived. And, and that would have been even better, like, if it had been... Because Blaine was probably the closest, based off the way the game was going, but I think Durin could have gotten there as well. 
So they get on the council. I probably wouldn't have let them been emperor unless they literally did a coup and killed everybody. But, you know, Jason, he was set up as a Mary Sue. He's a great noble. He's a good guy. He's a, he's a noble that you want to be in charge of you because he's a good guy. He would have been a good emperor. He would have been a, a servant of his people. And then all of a sudden these other people come in and say, no, you're not allowed to be the emperor. And I could have seen that escalating to like a war, which I thought would have been very interesting that, you know, part of the same survivors are now warring against each other when there's all these other threats. Like I, I just really would have liked to have seen how that would have played out long term. That, that would have been a very interesting twist on the story. The, the other threats, all these different monsters you had created for them, we, we talked a little bit about where they came from, the three faceless gods, the wizards or whatnot. From a mechanical standpoint, you had to make those up from scratch, right? Yep. So were you, were you just trying to make an interesting monster, or were you trying to really test what you could do with 5th edition. Because we were still in the beta rules of 5th edition at this point, the, the open testing. So what was your mindset there? Where were you experimenting as a GM? I was just trying to create an interesting encounter. My, my games, as you don't believe anymore, are very combat light. I don't normally do a lot of combat. Our, the game we're playing right now has been the exception to that rule. I disbelieve everything you're saying. <laughs> I'm sick of dying. Come on. I like to experiment uh, in this new game. I'm experimenting with a lot of combat. So normally I don't have a lot of combats in my game, and I know that my players want that. I mean, and especially Evan, he, he's mentioned many times after games, you know, I would have liked to have had a fight. So I wanted to have some combats in the game, and but I also wanted, as I said, I like for combats to tell a story. So... The Tersharctopus told a couple things. One, it said that there is life on this planet, because to that point, they had not seen any natural life other than the big fly thing that was far, far away that they didn't know what it was. It's a dangerous world. Uh, this creature killed a couple of the civilians, and it was made up of three things. So it gave them a fight, told some of the story. To me, that, that's a good, um, good combat. And it also allowed Valius, who, because of the way Nico missed the first game, was still not trusted. He was in chains. It allowed him to fight, and you have the quick, he fought with us, he must be a friend moment, so we could move past all that distrust and get him into the game. So it accomplished a lot of things. So it wasn't like, hey, what can I do with this 5e rules? It was, let me just put something together that's kind of funny, interesting, and tells a story. Gotcha. That You actually said something in the middle there that reminded me. So we had the giant Godzilla monster that they really couldn't do anything with but could teleport. There was the giant flying thing. Was that just another amalgus kaiju thingy that was out there that maybe could have come up and wasn't necessarily there? It was a, it was a dragon. I Oh. So it was, again, because of the dragon symbology or iconography, at some point in time, the way I envision it is they would have to seek out the dragons. Because there were lots of books in the temple and they kept falling apart, but eventually I would have let them find a couple that they could have opened carefully or read through, particularly once I realized that Nico was leaving and we were going to turn his character into an NPC that basically took over the temple, I was going to have his character find some, some stuff and, and reveal clues. And uh, there was going to be an above-ground city that the characters would have to have traveled to where the dragons resided, and that's how they were eventually going to get back to our world is the dragons were going to send them through. Because I wanted there to be this kind of weird dichotomy where underground they had more social conflicts. They might have had some skirmishes with these civilizations based off of their interaction, but they would still have to on occasion go to the surface world where there would be dangerous and lots of combats with three 
monsters put together. And uh, you also said originally that had they had the game survived to the point that they met the dragons and they would have gone back to their original world, there also would have been some different war and chaos there further down the line that they would have had to deal with. The elves took over. So they would have oh, come okay. back Because not, not every elf came back. Like just a small contingent. It was like one boat of like 200 elves came back through the portal. And so the elves that remained behind were going to take over this world and they would have come back to an elven empire. Gotcha. Okay. Going back to some of the mechanical discussion, we touched on it briefly here, that one lost episode where uh, the druid in a bird shape had more direct interaction with the giant Godzilla creature. Since that was a lost episode, how did that play out? Did you just storyline that? Did you actually have some checks and balances? I mean, and what happened in that encounter? Well, it was funny about that is uh, the end of the session before that, they had secured the beach and they had built all these bonfires because they realized that the Tershoctopus was afraid of fire. And they did that as a way to try to prevent any further Tershoctopus attacks. But I had, uh, we ended that episode with the Godzilla roar. Like I, I use a sound effect that is like, you know, type of a thing. And between games, I had texted Evan, we were talking about the game, and he said something about, well, I guess we're all going to die when the Godzilla shows up type of a thing. And I was like, well, maybe not if you put out all those fires, it's drawing its attention. So the, the point of that was that the fire is what was drawing its attention. And I told him this kind of out of game. So my thought is that they would have just ran and put the fires out. And then what I saw happening is they put all the fires out and then they would have seen more of a silhouette of this just giant creature nearby looking around, not quite seeing everything, and then maybe would wander off and go, go away, but they would get to see it, and then they would get to see it teleport, which would have been the, that first hint that, hey, this thing you know, doesn't just move through physical space. But that's not what they did. Even though I gave them the hint, they still, I think they started to put out the fires. They didn't do it very well, so there were still fires going. And then Nick's like, I'll turn into a bird and go fly into space, uh, which I thought was an awesome moment, so I didn't want to just you know, crispy bacon, fry him up like KFC. So it was all narrative. There was no mechanical, there's no checks. And, you know, thinking back to how to train your dragon, basically what I was doing is I was imagining he was the little dragon attacking the alpha and he was just flying in front of its face and he was, uh, you know, distracting it. And it also allowed me to tell another bit of the story because I had the Godzilla creature breathe fire on the treetops, which I think you learn about later, that a bunch of those snake, spider, scorpions fell because there was some talk about the character's trying to climb the trees and live in the treetops and that was me telling them that's a bad idea because there are all these evil creatures up there if you do that you're all going to die uh so that was a way for me to tell that part of the story it gave nick's character a very cool moment uh he got to see the godzilla teleport and then also that's actually how i revealed for the first time the uh the elf thing the elf puzzle box because uh, nick saw it from the air and then later they went to follow because they wanted, they didn't exactly know where the creature went. They like it was there, and then it wasn't. So they kind of went backwards and followed its trail, and then that's where they found that thing. So it was a way to tie the story together. But it was all narrative. Was there anything special about the giant trees that we missed, or were they just giant trees? They were just giant trees. Oh, I wanted that them to be. I wanted them to be too big to be able to chop down and make cabins. Because again, I didn't want them to live on top of the world. That that was not the plan. And uh, right. they did have uh, acidic sap. It wasn't like crazy, but like, so they wouldn't have been able to eat it either. So it was, they haven't really got to that part, but yeah. Gotcha. Okay. 
we have, in the course of this, kind of wrapped up all the details. We've talked about some of the crazier elements. We've talked about where some of the monsters came from, why they were there. We talked about the Slugthos, the Godzilla. We talked about some of the political intrigue. Peppered throughout this discussion, you have talked about ways the story would have gone or would potentially have gone with the, the demons coming out and escaping or maybe reanimating that corpse. Maybe the elves used them, maybe they didn't. Uh, in the original world, the elves taking over. You talked about that dragon race. So you, you've kind of put out these tendrils for, for things that might have been. That being said, with kind of revealing these facts, with kind of having a master idea behind this story, would you ever consider coming back to this world in another story, in another game? In theory, yes. I, I would like to re-explore that world because it's it's a world that I think has a lot of uh, possibilities. It's not all fleshed out, but I think there are some some nuggets there that are interesting. But in practical terms, I doubt it would ever happen. Just, uh, you know, I, currently the only group I play with D&D is you online. We're playing 13th Age. The, the game is happening at my table is Star Wars. And, you know, five years from now, I may have a completely different group of people who haven't listened to this podcast, and I could easily just start the same thing over, or I could have them find the city, and maybe all the people that were there are dead, and they're just another part of the mystery. Uh, but, yeah, there, there are elements, but, and, and, you know, we've mentioned many times I want to be a writer. And, really? Uh, have I not mentioned that? I thought I did. I, no, I, I, I didn't know a, that. We need to do a and a at some point in time. We really do. Yes. But as someone who wants to be a writer, I do have ideas. And I'm not saying they're all good, but I do have a lot of ideas. So often, by the time it's ready to start a new game, I've already got a new idea that I want. I'm, I'm as excited about this new idea as, I'm, as I am this old idea. So I don't know that, practically speaking, that I will ever come back to it. Because if I do have a new group of players that are like, hey, let's play D&D, I got a new story to run. You know, I don't, I don't know that I need to go backwards. Right, I agree with you. You, you, you. you always want to move forward with your skill as, as a GM. You always want to be pushing yourself to do something new. But I, I really think that um, you, you left yourself a wealth of concepts with this world that you created. And I think a game that picked up a couple years after where this game ended would be cool. I think a game that picks up decades after where this game ended would be cool. Um, especially if you had players at the table who listened to the show and knew some of these facts, or maybe some of your original players. Because then you would have that fun player no or player knowledge versus character knowledge, but you would also have decades of, of changes, so you can still throw them for loops. I mean, maybe you could have even, you know, these these PCs became the new emperors and rulers, and the new players are, are familiar with these stories. I mean, these are the fairy tales. These are the legends. So, Well, my, my thought, just having said that, is that the story was going to be that, that another ship of survivors was going to show up and then conflict. I could easily put all the PCs on that boat and, you know, rather than have... And rather have the, the, the argument from this side against them, it could be that side against the original pieces. I don't know. So there's definitely the possibility. I, I won't rule out forever, but practically speaking, probably not. I, I think during this episode here, we have covered every major question. So if 
we didn't answer your question thoroughly enough, please let us know over email or comments on Facebook. I, I think we can safely and securely tuck this one away and put it to bed. Yeah, I think that that was a very thorough interview. I, I hope people are interested. You know, I, it was good for me. I felt, you know, that I had these secrets that I've been keeping for a year now, and it felt good to kind of talk about them. And even if some of them aren't as exciting to you as it was to me, it's, it's nice to get to get past them. So I hope people find it interesting, and I hope people from a DM side um, get an idea of how I run my games and, and you know how big picture I, I have but how I only plan small picture, because I think for me, that's a very good way of doing it. And then the last question I'll just kind of touch on is uh, Matt did ask, just in general, like where do all these crazy ideas come from? And I think like most people who want to be a writer or who are creative, I don't have a great answer. They come from everywhere. I'll, uh, I'll see a commercial on TV that sparks an idea, but then it gets twisted. Or I'll watch a movie and I'll twist it. And a lot of it comes from the table where I, I start with a, a character concept and developing their background makes me think of something else. So, you know, there isn't anything in particular, there isn't one particular thing that I do, but as, as a writer, and I think it comes with it, I'm also a people watcher. And I think that's a very common thing for writers. Like every time I'm at the supermarket, I'm eavesdropping on the people next to me. I see what's in their cart, I see what they're wearing, and I, I make up stories in my head about who this person is and what they're doing. That's just like a constant mental thing that I do, probably because I'm crazy. But it provides me with a wealth of uh, interesting things to, to build on. And then I just put a fantasy spin on them. And at the end of the day, I just try to be a dick. And that kind of works out at the table. It's like, how can I take this idea and be an asshole with it? You can give us feedback and comments on our website, therpgacademy.com. You can listen to previous podcasts on our website and subscribe to new ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a table topic, we'd love to hear it. Email us at podcast at therpgacademy.com or connect with us. We're on Twitter at The RPG Academy. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash The RPG Academy. We also have a Google Plus page, The RPG Academy. As always, thanks for listening. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.